0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. I am your host, Frank LaRosa. And this is our Legal Perspective series, once again, joined by my host, my co-host here, Brian Neville. Brian, how you doing?
1: Awesome. Good morning.
0: Good morning. So today, we're going to jump right into it. For those of you that don't know Brian, he is the founder and managing partner of Lax & Neville, the premier securities law firm in our industry. And so I've known Brian for a long time, and, and he's my go-to attorney for all of our clients that need legal representation, which I believe, as you all know, if you're making a move and you have a significant practice, you should always get your own legal representation, regardless of whether the firm's going to provide it. So so Brian, today I just want to jump in real quick and and talk about a topic that keeps coming up. For the for our listeners and and Brian for you, where I'm coming from this is a focus on the W-2 wirehouse advisor, retail advisors perspective. And that is what happens if you're a retail advisor and you buy, you take over another advisor's book of business and you sign one of their, the firm's agreements and, you know, halfway through the agreement, you decide that it's just no longer a place for you to be. And that doesn't matter what firm it is, whether it's UBS, Morgan Wells, it, it's just firm agnostic, right? And the advisors are coming to me and say, well, what do I do? Am I stuck at the firm forever? Can I never leave the firm? And if I do, like, how do I... How do I think about my exit just in case? Or should I just not sign this agreement and not take over the book of business because there's too much risk? So from a legal perspective, what kind of advice would you give an advisor that's thinking about taking over a book of business or they might be in an agreement now, but they want to leave?
1: Frank, that's a great question. And I think you're right on by saying you have to look at this very differently in a wirehouse situation than you would in the independent space because- in the independent space, all those agreements, the financial advisor is in charge of crafting them. And usually the selling financial advisor is selling their whole practice. And it's viewed as a sale of a practice. You could have succession planning, obviously, in the independent space, but you're going to own the documents. You're going to have your own documents created custom for you. And I think it's important to look at that in how different that is in each of the wirehouses. Each of the wirehouses have their own program. I've been looking at these for well over 10 years when they started to roll them out. And one of the things I'd say to you, Frank, is they have changed dramatically in the last decade. Each firm's kind of iteration has changed very much in its treatment of what happens to the acquiring or the receiving FA during the term of that agreement. And all of them have set terms. So what you can say to anyone that's looking at these is, You, A, have to read the document because you might have done one five years ago, and the one that you have at Merrill Lynch or UBS today, if you're considering it, is vastly different because just about every two years or so, those agreements have changed. And you could throw out any one firm as an example, their iteration today is is vastly different than five, seven years ago. But they all do have a term, so you're not locked in with uh, crazy golden handcuffs forever, but you are substantially locked in for the term of that agreement. So the considerations of what happens if you want to leave during that are firm-specific and agreement-specific. And so you have to look at what happens if you leave. And then many firms, Frank, as you know, they'll have retirement programs that have different options for the buyer to seller. The seller can opt to take payouts over time. The Seller can sometimes take a lump sum that's determined based upon a formula, length of service, you know, how many commissions they generate. There's a whole formula at every firm in place. And, you know, one of the things I think purchasing advisors need to be aware of is, you know, you're entering into an agreement with the seller of this. And if they're expecting payments over time and you then leave the firm and those payments dry up, you've essentially put the seller into this terrible spot if they're not getting what they thought they sold to you. I've seen cases where the, the seller uh, comes out of retirement, comes back, calls on the clients, and is quite successful. So all of these need to be done with an informed basis, with an understanding of what that specific deal is. And I'd say one of the most important things is what is the nature of the relationship between the buyer and the seller? You know, when it's a longstanding team, it's very different than iterations where, and I think you know, you and I are seeing more and more of this. The aging nature of private wealth advisors at wirehouses is such that the remaining few solos that are out there tend to be older, right? And they they start to look like, I want to sell this practice. What am I going to do? And they approach their manager, and the manager's like, I'll find someone for you, right? And they try to find someone, but they don't have a pre-existing relationship, and, and so now you have somewhat of a a more arm's length negotiation. And there's not that kind of moral connection between them that you would see. So now, you know, if you're the seller in one of those transactions, you're taking on increased risk compared to if it's, you know, an intergenerational team or people that have been together forever. And this was always the plan. So there's a lot to consider. I have seen and could tell war stories about litigations in all different types of Team retirement setups that just went poorly. And I've also seen, Frank, where people will, at a wirehouse, they'll have an agreement and then it's the firm's agreement and then they sign a side agreement between them because the seller doesn't want to be put at risk of, you know, we're happy here at Merrill and I'm retiring and I'm getting payouts over five years and I'm entering into this in reliance on you staying at Merrill. So if you leave, and go get recruited to firm B and get a big check, I'm going to be looking for my payout. And so we've seen situations where the seller files an arbitration claim against the buyers because they're not getting their payout. And in some of those situations, the case is settled because the buyer says, geez, I did sign this agreement, and you're going to arbitration, which is a forum of equity, where you to have three arbitrators saying you bought this guy's book of business, you only paid him one of five years, you integrated it, and then you used it to goose your numbers all the way up to here, and then this other firm came and just gave you, you know, two hundred percent. You know, you, you're you gonna lose. Just, yeah, it's not a great defense of. So, yeah, I just I uh, got I got this great book, and I'm not paying for it anymore. So,
0: so what happens – Can I ask you a question about that? Because one of the, this is maybe my theory, and I, and I've talked to some managers about this. What if in that situation, and maybe they have a, a good relationship with a the seller, they convince the seller to, hey, we're going to move from, and you're going to use Merrill. So for the purpose of this conversation, we'll just say Merrill. So they're going to go from Merrill Lynch to Morgan Stanley, right? And the remaining advisors call up the re- retired advisors, say, hey, Brian, we're just letting you know we're going to move, right? And we want you to come with us. And we want your clients to move with us. And we know we owe you money. We want to pay you. We want to keep paying you. But we want to make sure these advisors come, these clients come over with us. Do you want to come with us? And it's a little bit of work. And we're not going to ask you to do a ton of work. And we know you're having fun on the golf course and all that stuff. But so how does that situation differ when the retiring advisor is willing to make that move and make, make some phone calls?
1: Yeah, no, I know. I've had that situation with many clients calling me and typically it is the buying team that is calling me because they're doing a transition and they want advice on how they can work through this and frequently the question comes up of you know can we induce the selling team to come along in a semi-retired status where we know they're just going to get a lot of phone calls because of the nature of a transition and we want them to be on you know our team and say, You should go, you should go. That's much more likely to get a successful move, in particular, if you're doing that in the first year or so of that sale because the relationships haven't solidified as much as the old relationship. And what I come back to there is the selling advisors have a separate agreement where they make promises in exchange for the money that they're getting. And I would say in that scenario, frequently, if they leave and they go to the new firm, they could very well be in breach of the agreements that they made because typically in a selling agreement, you represent that you are retiring in exchange for agreeing to retire. And there's certain things that everyone in those agreements has to do. They still have to do annual attestations. You to keep their licenses open. The whole program, Frank, of doing these is an exception to the rule that you can't share commissions with unlicensed people and the SEC has issued all these no action letters because they agree that this is a good idea, that people should be able to sell their books of business because of the value. But there there also becomes regulatory concerns for these advisors if, if they've gotten so far into the program that they've given up their licenses, there's a two-year window that you can come back without having to retest. So, you know, in those situations, Frank, the one thing I always say to if my clients are the buying clients is I would say you need to get the receiving FAs. I mean, I'm sorry, the selling FAs, they need to have their own counsel. They need separate, because the one lawyer cannot represent those two people because they were in arm's length uh, opposite sides of this contract. So they need, their, they need their own counsel, and then they need to understand what their risks are. I have also been retained by people in that situation to see what they can do. And I would say that position is probably the most awkward of all the scenarios we could think of, is if you are the selling FA, in particular, if you took a lump sum. Because then you took it up front. And now the firm's looking at this from this whole idea of, hey, we're the firm. We facilitated this upfront payment to you based upon our idea that we're gonna get, you know, at least five years out of the the team that bought it. And now one year into it, they left and you kind of conspired with them to breach the contract and to get these accounts out of here. And so now we're damaged. So there's the potential for liability is not insignificant and it needs to be it needs and I would say this. Every single firm agreement on these is different and has changed in the last several years. So you need to look at it carefully.
0: Yeah, I had a conversation with a manager, a friend of mine, I won't name the firm, but he effectively told me, if we have an advisor that inherited a book, that bought a book, and the selling advisor goes with him, there's really nothing we can do. Because basically, the firm is there to protect the retiring advisor, and that agreement is supposed to be protecting the retiring advisor so they can maintain those payments. And when the buying advisor leaves, that agreement basically goes in default, right? So they say, You're in default because now you're not paying the re- retired advisor. But if the retired advisor goes with them, then they're in default of nothing. Like, you know, I mean, they're in default of a contract, right? But the retirement advisor is not there anymore, so it doesn't really matter. And what he was saying was basically, I don't have any teeth to go after them because they all left.
1: Yeah. I, I, and again, I, I don't know what firm, and I don't think we should get into the specifics because every one of these agreements are different. But you know, some firms have, when the purchasing FA leaves over to the, the, say, five-year deal, there's money that they have to return. And if they don't return, they've also signed off on an agreement that the protocol won't apply, so you can't bring client contact lists with you and you can't solicit. So the level of detail that needs to be reviewed, I'd say, on each of these is pretty significant. And as you and I know, a protocol-compliant move is a lot easier than a non-protocol move. So the whole resignation, the process, and then if – both the seller and the buyer are involved. The one thing I would say is, is, is make sure both sides have independent counsel because they are they at are arm's length. They're on the opposite sides of that agreement. And so they should each be careful and, and they should each think through what could happen.
0: Yes, yeah, sure. and I think that's the moral of the story here in this conversation is that if you're an advisor thinking about making a move and you, and you inherited a book and you're not going to let the selling advisor know... You should be prepared. Number one, you should have legal counsel. And I would say, you know, you probably agree with me, legal counsel beyond what your new firm's going to provide, because there's a difference. Maybe you can maybe just touch on that for a minute. Why there's a difference? Well, because I've talked to advisors and they're like, well, I'm going to such and such, and they said they're going to give me an attorney. When you create a problem, when there's a problem, potential problem, you know, that attorney has to decide who they're representing, whether it's the firm that's paying them or you as the advisor.
1: Absolutely. Look, the lawyers at the wirehouses and the regional firms and you name it, the lawyers that they hire for transitions are all very good. And they all are going to start off their conversations, Frank, with the advisor saying, hey, this call is attorney client privileged. You're the client. I don't have to send you a retainer because you're not financially responsible for this. The firm is picking it up. But then they have to say, But I have two clients in this transaction. I have you and a receiving firm. And right now there's no conflict because you guys have common interest. The common interest is that you want to get over to Firm B and Firm B wants you to get over there avoiding litigation. But there's going to be ground rules. And that's what we're going to talk about in this call. And then I'm going to follow it up with an email saying what the ground rules are. So let's just say one of those ground rules are broken or something comes out in the litigation because of a retirement program. The law firm now has to determine is that breach of one of the ground rules that we set forth such that there's a conflict of interest in the attorney representing both the advisors and representing the firm. And almost always there is because the firm is going to want to say in his defense, we told them not to do that. And you know, we don't think it's a material breach, we don't think there's damages, but you know, that was against our onboarding rules. And then so a lawyer can't be representing both those parties. So now the, you know, transitioning team has to scramble and they have to get their own counsel. And frequently the firms, you know, they put a limitation on the scope of that representation, right? A lot of times they'll say that they can respond to demand letters or this or that, but they won't enter into litigation on your behalf that that would have to be a separate law firm. Or they'll say, obviously, they they can't negotiate for you with the firm because that's an arm's length. Negotiation, and you may want a contract term changed, and you need your own lawyer for that. So, because they can only represent you in a limited scope, you have to understand what that limited scope is, and you need your own lawyer because a) you need negotiating changes to the employment agreement with your new firm, and you need you need a conversation that I feel is truly attorney-client privileged. And when I say truly, when you have that call with that attorney, and he's told you, I have two clients. The lawyer will necessarily share what each client says with that attorney. You have to. That's what gets you the transition going through. When the litigation comes out, you just want someone who's thinking just of you, just you and your team, not anyone else. And, you know, necessarily when that conflict arises, you you want someone who's been knowledgeable about
0: it all along. Right. So again, the moral there. And in this particular topic about moving when you are engaged in a retirement plan, with another retirement purchase with another advisor, there's this additional risks involved with the transition protocol, non-protocol, all that stuff. So they definitely should have their own attorney then. And some of it may also include how to talk to you, right, about how to talk to the retired advisor. If I'm the advisor that took the book and I, I need to figure out the right way and timing potentially of how do I bring up this subject with the advisor who's been retired for three years, right? And because you have to just, there's landmines there in those conversations. And again, so the point is just really having someone with counsel, look, I can give them advice, right? But it's not legal advice. It's like, hey, philosophically, and as a manager, as a former complex director, this is this is how I would have a conversation. But that's not going to stand up in an arbitration, you know, with arbitration, because I'm not an attorney. There are risks involved that you need to make sure that you're getting legal advice on in order to not put yourself in jeopardy, making the move and having that book of business be a substantial part of your revenue and that it doesn't move and the firm that you're going to has problems with it. So anyway, look, that's my point is that this is a topic that continues to come up as the advisor workforce, the retail advisor workforce is getting older. Yeah. And, and candidly, firms are, I'll say pushing, but suggesting to these older individual practitioners that they not only form a team, but they sign, you know, a retirement agreement or an intent, an intent agreement. And they're not disclosing all of the landmines and loopholes and all that stuff. If you're in that world, you just, just go about it cautiously. And maybe even, get outside counsel before you sign an agreement if you're at a Morgan or a Merrill or a UBS or whatever, just because, you know, the managers, Look candidly, I have a lot of friends that are managers and they're great people, but they don't, they don't know the legal side of those agreements and they're certainly not going to give the advisor counsel on it.
1: And they can't, and, and it, it would be conflicted advice anyway. I mean, if you're a skeptic of the wirehouse model, you would say that a lot of the ways that these have been rolled out and then changed are designed to make, you know, the households, the clients, the accounts stickier to the firm. Right. Like that's just one of the reasons why they want to do this. Now, you know, a countervailing argument, which I think is a tremendous one, is historically there was no value for an advisor if you got hit a proverbial bus or, you know, you had a terrible stroke and you couldn't work anymore. Here, there is a definite advantage to the programs. They are providing the selling advisor substantial consideration. So I wouldn't say that I'm such a skeptic that they're, you know, necessarily flawed, but, you know, there's a whole list of pros and a whole list of cons. And to your point, I don't think managers are thinking about it the same way an advisor should be thinking about it. And there's some great managers, to your point. Some, some of the best people in the industry are these complex managers that, that have 30 plus years of experience now. And you know, many of them are company guys or women to the core. And so they might not even understand the biases they have because of how long they've been there, that you know, some of these deals can absolutely limit your portability. And I think for a lot of advisors, they've been thinking for a very long time, this is my business. I can make a phone call tomorrow and be gone. And then you sign a document that really can change that. In particular, again, if you're at a protocol firm and this whole agreement has terms in there that says the protocol is not going to apply to this, your book is not as portable. And I don't think that's something a lot of managers are saying, you know, look for that little, you know, landmine. But again, I think a simple thing about these things is these are substantial transactions, right? Like for a lot of advisors, these transactions are multiples of the size of a transaction, like when you bought your home and the the sheer number of documents. And I think most firms have done a good job. They'll have a whole FAQ section. They'll have, there's a lot of explanatory documents. And there's folks that are, are in the national office that can answer questions that the managers can't. But because it's so complex, you really want to hire someone that has, has reviewed these Many, many times, right? I, I've reviewed every wirehouse's retirement programs. And sometimes when someone calls me and they say, Oh, I signed one of these in 2018, I go into my forms bank and I pull out that firm's 2018 one because it's different than their 2021. So the other thing everyone should do on these is, is they should spend the time it takes to read them, right? I think we all have gotten a little bit immune with our click through mentality of like, you know, are, are you really going to? ask apple to change their itunes agreement no because they're not going to So sometimes you just click yes right. but these these, <laughs> these agreements are not something that you click through because right. it's, this is a potential career altering document that you're signing so you know don't sign it blindly
0: okay all right awesome that's great advice i appreciate it i think my audience will appreciate it and again this is to many people their biggest asset you know, aside from their house, and you have to look at it that way. Even if you're in a W two world, it's a, it's an asset that you have to take care of. So, Brian, I appreciate it very much for all the listeners. Thank you again, Brian. For new listeners who who haven't engaged with you or don't know where they can find you, can you just let us know where they can find you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you just get online and search for Lax and Neville, we're located in Manhattan. If anyone ever needs to get in touch with me, just call the office number. And someone will get you on my calendar and we're happy to take, you know, 30, 45 minute introductory phone calls. So you can understand if you want to retain us, but happy to help Frank.
0: It was great. Great great chat. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. And for listeners, thanks again for joining us. Don't forget to go to Apple iTunes, wherever you listen to your podcast, leave a review, make a comment, five star ratings, of course. And also (laughs) you can check us out if you want to see, see how we're dressed today. We're both wearing button downs, which is, which is so we're all dressed up today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but you go to our YouTube channel, Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa, and uh, you can see us there. There's other great videos. We've done a number of these with Brian, so we have a whole legal perspectives section, which you should just, I would spend some time watching every single one of them. So, Brian, thanks again, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to Advisor Talk with Frank LaRosa. If you're looking for more advice or solutions on any topics in the financial services industry or you just want to subscribe to our podcast, head on over to EliteConsultingPartners.com podcasts.